As we come to God's word, we need his help. So let us begin with a word of prayer. Father, we come to your word as as needy people, people who are prone to want to believe the things that are contrary to your word, who need to be corrected, who need to be comforted. We ask that your spirit would change our hearts, that you would illuminate your word to us, give us ears to hear today what the spirit says. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we're continuing in our sermon series in the book of John, and we are finally finishing chapter 1. And as much as our first sermon was about an introduction, and our second sermon was about an introduction, our third sermon is about an introduction. Uh, And hopefully as the chapter ends, we are kind of getting out of the introductory stages of John's uh, opening to the revelation of who Jesus is. Remember, he has at the end of his book in chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, that he wrote these things down so that we would believe, and that by believing that Jesus is the Christ, we would have life in his name. And so John is laying the groundwork for us to believe more about who Jesus is. And we're getting an introduction, not about who Jesus is at this point so much, or or John the Baptist, but now uh, we're getting introduced to the first disciples of Jesus, the people that would follow after him. Now we, we have to answer some questions about what discipleship is. We really have three questions today that we're answering. Uh, one, what is a disciple? Uh, two, how do you become a disciple? And three, what is the goal of being a disciple? So what is a disciple? I, I think we all have some lived body experience where we have had somebody in our life who has been influential to us. Right? It might have been a teacher. And when we were a student, and they're the person that influenced us, we followed them, that we learned from them, they helped form who we are. And it might be your parents, even right now, who are investing in your life. Maybe it was some other influential man or woman who's just spent the time to live life alongside you and teach you something you didn't already know, to bring you towards maturity. And so discipleship, becoming a disciple is kind of a natural thing we've all experienced in various facets of life. And and so we're looking at what it means to be a disciple, specifically a disciple of Jesus. So we see this uh, play out four different times. There's kind of four different scenes that happen as people begin to follow Jesus. Now, There's a little bit of uh, introductory phase here that's happening. These people have not necessarily given up everything to follow Jesus yet. As we see in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they they leave everything and follow Jesus, and it's like they're gone forever. Some of this seems to be uh, come and see, right? We we heard that phrase twice. And so there's this sense in which people are, they want to know more about who Jesus is. So they're beginning the, the process of discipleship. And so we kind of have four scenes for us. And so we'll walk through each of those and talk a little bit about what it means to be a disciple and how they became disciples. We begin with John the Baptist, where we left off last week, and he's standing there and he has some disciples, right? He has these people who have been uh, with him, preparing people for the coming of the Christ, right? That was John's entire ministry was one of preparation, one of... uh, speaking to the hearts of Israel to prepare for the coming of the promised king. 
And so some of his disciples are there. They're helping whatever John is doing. They're learning from him. And then John says, behold, the Lamb of God. And they're like, well, if John's telling us this is the Lamb of God, we probably should find out more about who this man is. Right? And so they leave John because of the testimony he had about who Jesus is. And it would have been a fulfillment of John's ministry, right? John doesn't want to be the center of attention. John wants to decrease that Christ might increase. His preparation is temporary, and he's pointing people to the Lamb, to the one who God sends, the true Christ, the King who's to come. And so these two disciples, they become not disciples of John, but disciples of Jesus because of the testimony of John. John says this thing, and they respond by following Jesus. Okay, and then we're told that one of these men, this is getting into our next scene, verse 40. We'll come back to the question in a second. Verse 40 and 42, Andrew is one of these men, and and he leaves to go find his brother, Simon. And there's not a lot of interaction. He just goes and he tells them, we've found the promised Messiah. We found the Christ. The one who we've been waiting for. And it seems Peter's like, great, let's go. I'm really excited to see what, what's going on. Who's this Jesus? It's kind of the same thing. It's, it's somewhat anticlimactic. There's not a lot of discussion that's happening. Andrew just shows up. And because of his testimony about who Jesus is, about what he found, Peter begins to be a disciple, begins to follow Jesus. And we see that Jesus goes to Galilee and calls Philip to come and follow him, simply responding to follow him. And then Philip goes and finds Nathanael, verses 45 through 51. Tells him, not that we've just found the Christ, but we found the one that Moses and the law and all of the prophets have told us about. Philip has a Philip and Nathaniel's interaction is a bit longer than everybody else's, and there's some stuff for us to learn in there. Because Nathaniel doesn't quite buy everything. Right? He has some skeptical questions. He doesn't buy the fact that the Christ would come from Nazareth. And so to answer the question, what is a disciple? Is is those who are following after somebody to learn, to grow, to align yourself? with a person, a, a, a leader, a teacher. In this case, the promised Messiah who they're seeing through the lens of a king who's going to come and establish a kingdom. And how do they become disciples? Through the testimony of somebody else. John's testimony turns the two men. Andrew's testimony brings in his brother. Philip's testimony brings Nathaniel. They didn't have a lot of content to their testimony. Maybe one thing that they knew, at least a hunch that this is the promised Messiah. We've heard about him. We've seen him. I've followed him to here. You should come with us. And the response from Jesus and Philip is that they should just come and see for themselves. And so the testimony that goes forth isn't one of significant, convincing Lots of information, but a simple invitation. I'm the testimony of somebody else who has already become a disciple. An invitation to come and to see, to learn more about who this Jesus is, to 
whether responding simply because we just trust the testimony of others or to come with skeptical questions and to find out for ourselves who this Jesus is. Are the claims truly accurate? How do we come, become a disciple? And what is the goal of a disciple? There's a, there's a lot going on in here that has to do with what I would say are motivations of why we do things. And there's a lot going on in the background as these men are going and saying, hey, we found the Christ. We found the king who's to come. We found the one who Moses and the prophets have talked about. And we see this playing out throughout all of these interactions. You know, this opening scene where these two men leave John and start following Jesus, Jesus has the least seeker-sensitive approach to evangelism. Almost any time somebody comes to him with like the, the softball, like, how can I have eternal life? Well, repent of your sin and trust in me. No, Jesus probes them with a question, trying to see where their motives are at. And so these two guys are following him, and he's like, who's following me? I'm so glad you've decided to follow me. No, that's not what Jesus says. Jesus asks them this question to probe their motivation. What are you seeking? There's a lot of things that might cause somebody at this time to seek after somebody who's being uh, portrayed as the Christ. Right, so this is supposed to be the, the, the king who's to come. Right, so uh, if, if you're uh, you know, Andrew and this other man, you might think, we're going to get in on the ground floor of the new kingdom. Right, I'm going to sit you know, right at the king's right side. And I'm going to have this place of influence uh, if I'm first in, I'm first in line. So it's, it's probably good to be on the king's side. You may have disdain for the Roman government, and so you just want to align with, you know, you want to be on the right side of history. Kings are powerful. You may be seeking to have a place of power and authority. We're not really sure all of the things that would cause somebody to go and see who Jesus is and to follow after him at this time. But Jesus wants to know what is their true motivation. Because part of our, our expectations, our motivations for doing things has a lot to do with our ability to be, continue in our discipleship. You know, I'm sure we've all experienced this in life where somebody has like, overhyped something so much. Uh, there is thousands of years of anticipation that the Christ is going to come and deliver the people of Israel once again and the new kingdom is going to be established and the son of David is going to sit on his throne forever. These are the promises throughout the Old Testament that Jesus is claiming to fulfill at this point. And so there's a lot of hype. And we have similar but not nearly as hyped up situations in our own life. You know, your friend tells you this is the greatest restaurant ever. They have the best tacos and you go there and it not that great right or if you listen to sports radio and you're leading up to the beginning of the sports season and oh, this is the year we're gonna win it all and it doesn't happen especially if you like minnesota sports right there's there's this sense in which the hype the anticipation feeds into our expectations what are we expecting to get what we expect to get, the motive, the thing that we're going to seek after, 
will either allow us to continue through difficulty, through waiting, through uncertainty, or it will leave us disappointed if we're seeking the wrong things. Now, I was thinking about this next section as Andrew goes and finds his brother, right? Andrew's like the first one to follow after Jesus. Do you know what you hear about Andrew, the rest of the New Testament? He's in a list of names, and at one point he tells Jesus that a kid has some bread and fish. That's all you hear about Andrew. There's not very many uh, St. Andrew churches. There are some, but he's not the most popular disciple, the most prominent apostle. And then he goes and gets his brother, and Simon comes and becomes Peter. And we know from all sorts of other passages that Peter has a significant role. And so if Andrew was coming to find his number one place in line, he would probably be very disappointed as his brother has now usurped the first place in Jesus' discipleship ministry. What are you seeking? Philip and Nathaniel have this interaction. And they're seeking after this promised king. And some of what Jesus is doing, what John's revealing to us throughout this book, is that Jesus is going to disappoint some of the expectations about what the Messiah was going to do, about what this king was going to look like. He's not going to fit into the box of the day of what they thought he would do and be like. And that is part of Nathaniel's complaint. Why... Are you serious? You're saying that the Messiah is coming from the cruddy town of Nazareth? Right? Like when you're thinking of a king, you're thinking of somebody powerful, somebody who's got a reputation, has influence, right? You want Jesus of you know Bethlehem, Jesus, son of David, not son of Joseph. You want Jesus, you know, king of Rome, king of Jerusalem. You want somebody that has pomp. Somebody who has power. Somebody who has significance. And you're trying to tell me that the Christ has come from an obscure, cruddy town like Nazareth. We're told where Nathaniel and Philip are from. It's, it's a kind of a nearby town of Nazareth in Galilee. And, uh, and so there, there's some sense in which, you know, I don't know what cities you grew up in, but like, Depending what suburb you're from, you're always a little bit better than the one next to it, you know, and like the, the next layer out. So we have at least the idea that, you know, we're both from the bad part of town, but like that bad part of town, I don't know that I buy it, Philip. Jesus is undermining some of the expectation. He's dethroning some of the idea of what this promised king is going to be like. And really, what's interesting here is that Nathaniel, the skeptical one, the one with the questions, is the one who really seems to get it first. When he comes, we're told this interaction with him. Jesus reaches out and says, hey, look, it's Nathaniel, the Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. And he's like, I don't know you. Who are you? When did we meet? And Jesus has this supernatural experience. Right moment where he says, well, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. And that's enough to dethrone all of the skepticism in Nathaniel's mind. 
He calls him the son of God. We don't want to overly read into that some idea of him being divine at this point. Because the, the idea of the son of God is also the idea of Israel is called the son of God. The king is called the son of God. This idea of like, you are the ideal Israelite. You are the king. And this confession that God has sent him, that he is taking into this role, he immediately affirms the testimony of Philip. And Jesus responds to him, Do you believe because I told you something so simple as I saw you under the fig tree? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You'll see far greater things than these. And and what John is doing here with this testimony from Jesus is he's teeing us up for the next part of the book. The next scene is going to be Jesus at the wedding at Canaan. We're going to begin to see what Jesus is going to do. We're going to see significant signs. The people who have come and seen what Jesus is, who he is, what he's going to do, what is the king really like? They're coming to see, and Jesus is going to show them. In fact, he's, he alludes to this imagery back. Uh, Jacob had this dream, and he saw the angels coming up and down from heaven. Jesus says, that vision is going to be true of me. I'm, I'm the bridge between heaven and earth. You are going to see incredible things. You don't even understand a little bit about who I am yet. But what is the goal of discipleship? What's the goal of being a disciple? As we've talked a little bit about it. It's to learn. It's to grow. We talked a little bit about motives and expectations. And I wonder if we can use those questions to probe our own motivations. I don't know why we all decide to come here this morning. I don't know why we all decide to come here every week. We all have different motivations. Our sinful hearts make us divided. There's, there are different things that draw us to be disciples. Some of them are better than others. Or we might be here because it's the right thing to do. You know, if you have this cultural Christianity that's so prevalent in our day, it's, it, you know, it's a good thing for a father to bring his family to church. It's, it's a duty. It's, it's the good thing. We want to do good things. And church is a good thing. Or we might be here because we're forced to be here. Mom and dad pushed us into the car. Whether or not we wanted to go, we are here. We might be here because of a relational obligation. Not so much under duress as a parent and a child, but you know, we, we want to be seen in a good light. We want to preserve a relationship. There's, there's different things that draw us in. I don't know what motivates you to follow after Christ. But I think we get the answer of what the right motivation ought to be in this opening scene as these two men leave and follow after Jesus. The surprising question from Jesus is, what are you seeking? It's the re- you know, what's your motivation for being here? What are you seeking to get? And their response is not something quick. It's almost like they don't know what they're seeking. 
They want to know where Jesus is staying. They want to know where he abides, where he dwells. They want to spend time with him. They want to know more about him. They want to be where Jesus is. It's a good confession. And Jesus responds by saying, come and you will see. It's all we can draw people to do. It's the only motivation that will be able to sustain us as we walk as disciples of Jesus is to seek to be where Jesus is, to go where he abides, to be where he is, to do the things he's doing, to go where he has promised to meet with us. It's what we confess about our worship service, that when the saints gather together and praise, the Lord's presence is here with us in a profound way, and that as we hear his word read and preached and participate in the sacraments, he is present with us. If we come here to gain power, to have re- retain our reputation, or because it's a good thing, it's going to be hard for us to keep it up. In fact, there's this really famous quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may be familiar with it. He says this, salvation is free. We talk about this every week. Salvation is free, right? We don't come and earn our way to God through discipleship. Salvation is free. Christ's righteousness is given to us freely as a gift because of what he did that we couldn't do. So salvation is free, but discipleship will cost you your life. And, you know, you quote some guy that doesn't make it valid. Let's hear what Jesus has to say about discipleship from Luke chapter 14. He says, great crowds accompanied him. Right? Jesus' whole life is people coming to him to get something. My kid is sick. I'm sick. Who are you? Like, Jesus' whole life is interacting with needy people. And so there's great crowds following after him. And he turns and he says to them, If anyone wants to come after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began, began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, doesn't sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him, who comes out against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Therefore, if any of you who does not renounce all of these things, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus is setting a really high bar for what it means to be a disciple. He's warning people about how difficult it's going to be. It's going to cost us something. Discipleship is costly. It's always going to rub up against the other things that we love. It's going to challenge our other motivations, our other loyalties. And if we come with the wrong expectations, if we come seeking different things, if we come trying to, you know, make our life better or whatever our other motivation is, 
It's not going to sustain us through the hardship. We are following a king who's going to die at the hands of the Romans. Following the suffering king is going to cause us to suffer with him. The cost of discipleship is the dethroning of the other idols in our hearts. The things that we hold more dear, the things that prevent us from being a disciple, they must all be subjected to the lordship of Christ. Not so that we can earn a place in his kingdom, but because his kingdom is so great, we would leave everything in order to find it. Remember some of our preaching from the parables this summer. It's not a foreign concept in scripture. And so we must ask ourselves again and again, especially when it gets hard, especially when we don't want to do the things Jesus is calling us to, especially when the things that are uncomfortable for us, the costly things in our lives, we need to ask, what are we seeking? Are we seeking momentary pleasures and comforts? Are we seeking status? Are we seeking power? Or are we seeking to be with Jesus? Are we seeking to belong in his kingdom? Are we seeking to see where he stays? It simplifies things for us, especially as those who have testimony to bring other disciples along. Right? We become disciples and then we just tell people and they become disciples. It sounds really easy. And some of the thing is you get people that ask, like, why would it why bother? Right. And if we appeal to people's sensibilities, well, Jesus will make your life great. Uh, it's really encouraging at our church. Uh, you know, whatever, uh, it'll make your marriage better. Whatever we appeal to will be the thing that the person is expecting to receive. But if we are appealing to people that Jesus is who he says he is, that's all we're encouraged to do. That's what we're commanded to do. And if they have questions, all we ask them to do is to come and to see. Hey, you might not believe that God exists and that we are under his wrath for our sin. I know it's true and I can't convince you. God is the only one that can convince you. I'm asking you to come and to see. Come and see. I'm not promising you wealth or fame or comfort. I'm promising you that there is a savior who can do for us the thing that you might even deny needs to happen. A need for a king, a need for salvation, a need for a price to be paid that you might be forgiven. If we don't cling to the cross, if we don't cling to Jesus' death and his righteousness as the thing we are seeking, then the thing we are clinging to will disappoint us. All of the hype, all of the expectation about who Jesus was going to be, freedom from Rome and government oppression is not the reason to follow Jesus. A place at the table is not a reason to follow Jesus. Finding Jesus is the reason to follow Jesus and to belong to him. As we said from our assurance of pardon today, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come.
God is reconciling us to himself. If we're seeking reconciliation with God, then we will not be disappointed. For he is the only way. And it's entrusting in that that we will not be disappointed and we will be able to endure through whatever discipleship might cost us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Jesus here on earth to show us who you really are, to reveal to us what it means to be a disciple. We thank you that he's reconciling us and so many others to you. Help us to seek him with the right motivations. Help us to trust in him for the right things and help us to die to the things that distract us and pull us away from him. Lord, we need your grace and your Holy Spirit. This is nothing we can do on our own. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.